So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. And hello, Bethan, previously our ambassador for Dubai. Um, she says, Ollie, I'm fuming. You've recently appointed some guy called Mikey as the ambassador for Dubai. Two exclamation marks. If he was such a fan as he claimed to be, then he should have known there was already a ambassador for Dubai from season three, episode six, me. I went through waves of hurt over the past few weeks, but eventually I came to the conclusion that maybe you do appoint multiples, and I was actually happy to share my ambassadorship until you then, in episode 5, appointed Maria and Mark to be ambassadors of all the Netherlands, excluding Utrecht, because there was already a ambassador to Utrecht. Ollie, where is your consistency? Um... Okay. Firstly, Bethan, I apologise to you and anyone who is a ambassador for a disputed territory. But just to be clear, in essence, all that's happened is the ambassador thing was sort of a joke to begin with. Um, I didn't start a spreadsheet until episode nine of season four. So if you were appointed ambassador on the show prior to April the 11th, 2017, there is a chance that I could, in future, inadvertently redistribute your territory to another ambassador, as has happened here with Bethan. Um, if you've recently discovered the show and you're currently binging the back catalogue, if that's you, please do note down the names and territories of all the ambassadors from whenever we started doing that until Season 4, Episode 9, and email them to me, because clearly you'll be doing everyone a great service. Uh, now, this week's show is about life on a cruise ship. Uh, I, I like to think of it as the concluding part of our unofficial trilogy about boats. Uh, we had Ollie Peart on a houseboat a couple of weeks ago, then last week our smuggling extravaganza. Uh, this week, it's a warts and all exploration of what it's like working for one of the big entertainment cruise brands, Disney. Uh, it is interesting, even if you've never wanted to go on a cruise. I haven't. And actually, our guest Andy is so enthusiastic about it all, I reckon some of you will be booking cruises for next summer on the basis of his interview. I say this, by the way, knowing we can harness serious consumer power out there. Uh, Tom tweeted us this week to say he bought Robert Stone's book uh, on the basis of last week's show, and Phil said he bought a VR headset on the basis of Ollie's review earlier in the series. Um, well, here is something you should sign up for, a free case of craft beer from beer52.com. They are the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club and they are the sponsors of this week's show. As a man fan, you can get a case for free. You just pay 2.95 postage for eight incredible craft beers and a snack delivered to your door and they even chuck in a copy of Ferment magazine which includes a monthly column by Ollie Peart himself. So if you weren't sold on the free world class beer, surely a column by the bearded wonder would be enough to arouse you. 
There is no minimum commitment. You just take a free case, try the genuinely delicious free beers, and then see what you think. If it's not for you, pause or cancel your trial. Just visit beer52.com slash man and claim your free case today. Uh, that is the word beer, then the numbers 52.com slash M-A-N-N. And thanks again to them. Right, on this week's show, you will learn what do you want to go and play chess really means. You will learn exactly how to do the Disney point, And you will learn what Kanyaza is. It involves the Volvo. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. I had two really, really good English friends. Both of them got fired for sleeping with guests. Sex, drugs and Mickey Mouse. Life as crew on a Caribbean cruise. No dive bombing, no fingering, no hand jobs. And Alex Fox writes the menu for a pre-wedding sex fast. But first, it's time to talk trends with a man who's looking even more orange than usual. It's Ollie Peart and the Zeitgeist. Hello, Ollie. While it was raining here, I was in... Uh, uh, sunny Be- Actually, what is that in French? Paris Pe- du Soleil. Paris des Soleils. Very uh, <laughs> très bien. Le le billet est très expensive. <laughs> That's fine. Just educate everyone what the temperature was in Paris because anyone French has stopped listening by this point now. Um, the reason you were in Paris was because you were set a challenge last week, which mm-hmm. we did record, but then the heat of the roof terrace we were on melted the equipment, so the listeners never got to hear it. But you were set a challenge by Davy in Bristol who said that he would like you, for the show, to try a bird scooter. And apparently, according to you, that necessitated an expenses-paid trip to Paris. So what is a bird scooter? A bird scooter is a scooter for adults. I mean, immediately, I'm against it. What makes it a scooter for adults is that it's got a motor in it, and they can travel at 24 kilometres an hour. And the but I- you be, presumably can't ride them on the road? You can. In oh, fact, okay. you have to, because oh, okay. to ride them on a footpath Would is- be lethal and illegal the reason these things are getting spoken about all the time is because they are a rentable service so actually the technology isn't in the scooter itself you can go to Halfords and buy an electric scooter the real technology is in the app which is a little bit like Uber so you load up the app I'm in uh, I'm in Paris Uh sorry French people like I said they've gone yeah okay fine so in that case I was in Paris In Saint Germain, where a beer is twelve euros fifty, you yeah I know, and you open up the app and then you see the the bird logo everywhere, and the logo represents a single scooter, and you can tap on that scooter and it will tell you how much battery it's got, and then you can tap a little icon in the bottom right and it will give you directions to where that scooter is. Okay, and is it in a dock like the Boris bikes in London? No, so these just left on the street. Yeah, don't people nick them? Uh, No. In the United States, they're they're in over 30 cities. And as a result of that sort of dockless system, some of the local communities there have decided to take it upon themselves to protest by smearing dog shit on them, chucking them in trees, chucking them in rivers, because people that use them aren't thinking about where they leave them. You're supposed to leave them like in a corner or against a wall or by a lamppost, somewhere that's kind of a bit discreet. Yeah. But instead, people just leave in the middle of pavements. The system that they're running in Paris, I spoke to the head of Bird France, a guy called Kenneth Schenkler, mm-hmm. and he told me that the way that they operate is they check on a day-to-day basis the demand that they get. So say they put out 500 scooters one day. If a certain chunk of those don't get used three times by three different people in any one given day, they will go out at night and then remove those. And they constantly cycle the scooters over anyway because they've got to charge them up. You don't charge them up. How much does it cost? So it costs you a euro, this is in Paris, it costs you a euro to activate it, which you do use in the app, you scan a QR code, and then it charges you 15 cents for every 
minute of use. I rode 10 miles in two days, and that cost me 50 euros. Wow. That's Whereas buying an electric scooter in the first place is presumably, what, like 200 quid or something? The only thing with that is, though, in all fairness to them, is the way that I was using it because I was testing them and I knew I had 50 euros credit and I didn't want to have to like leave the scooter someone else take the scooter and then I have to go and look for another scooter mm. whilst I was sat down having a drink or whatever I just like hoard the scooter using the scooter as your company like Wilson the Ball in Castaway exactly yeah, yeah. not was, designed for that it was my Wilson um, so, so actually well, isn't there a shortcut there so mm. let's say you want to go for a horrifically expensive beer when you're halfway through scooting around the capital sure at that point, presumably, you can "quote unquote" return it by deactivating the app, but it's, it's still locking it, yeah. right? But it's still next to you, so yeah. then you just unlock it again when no one borrows it for an hour, and you haven't paid for that hour. Yeah, it's next to you, but then it's identified on the uh, on the app, so someone could walk along and go, um, "Oi, mate, can I?" Yeah, you know, but and it's kind of there's a bit of an etiquette there. I mean, that's that's what's going to come out of it. There'll be some kind of scooter etiquette, I reckon. Um, I, w- I was I was waiting for someone to come and say, "Oi." Give me a scooter or in French. Yes. Excusez-moi. Pardon. Pardon. Monsieur. Monsieur, le scooter, s'il vous plaît. Yeah. Because it's like holding a cab and not paying for it. That's yeah. what it's like. Yeah, exactly. It's the equivalent. And the thing is, this is a this is a new type of floating transport. And there's there's other things that exist at the moment. There's some in London as well. The Ofo bike, you've probably seen these are like big yellow bikes that are sort of around the city. And pa- floating means dockless, right? Dockless, Not yeah. literally <clears throat> hovering in the air like the Jetsons. No, but that would be brilliant. Yeah, well, mm, jury's out. But the problem with those is, I, I put a word out on Twitter to see what people felt about these sort of floating trans- transport systems. And a lot of people... You put a word out on what? Twitter, yeah, I'm that using social, social media. network yes. that you don't use anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'm using it now. When did that happen? Yeah, well, it happened a couple of weeks ago. Right. So how long did it last then? Your absence? Six weeks. Six weeks. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. That's oh, quite you're the a, detox. You're a new man now. Yeah. yeah. But a lot of people are really agitated with them, saying that they're dumped on the street. People don't care where they leave them, and they're a mess, and they kind of just you know create all kinds of different problems. That is the case with those things, but. In Paris, they have three different bike systems. They've got a dock bike system and they've got two dockless bike systems that I saw. Mm -hmm. And when you see those bikes on the street, they're horrible and they're really big. So they're kind of like littered everywhere. Even if someone's put them there neatly, you get your bloody bag caught on the handlebars. These scooters, I think, are way more discreet. Seriously, you can just tuck them behind a bin. You can Mm. kind of just... And they're, they're much smaller. The handlebars are narrower. And to ride them around the city as well is far more convenient. Is it, though? Because you're the kind of person... I remember the first time we met, Mm -hmm. you turned up on a skateboard. Yeah, sure. You're a little bit older now. I don't know if you still commute into London with a skateboard. It's a bit embarrassing. I think it was was borderline then, but I was like, okay. It was borderline. Just this side of 30. Yeah, I might might start doing it again. (laughs) But you're that kind of guy. I'd look like a dick on a scooter, wouldn't I? No. I've got a suit on and I've got a backpack and I'm using an app to navigate my way around the city and I'm on a scooter, I'd look like a dick. As a skateboarder, I inherently hate anybody that's on rollerblades and anybody that rides scooters. They, oh, to okay. me, are hideous. So you've taken a trip to the dark side with this. I didn't realise that. Exactly. Okay. That's how much I love them. I genuinely think that compared to the bike systems, even the, the docking bike systems, these have the potential to completely change how we ride around cities. And you don't look like a dick on them. I mean, I did with the helmet on. Can't they just make one where you put both feet on it, though? You can put both feet on it. I know, I know, but one in front of the other. But I want one where you can put feet side by side. So I feel, I basically, I want a chair on wheels that takes me somewhere. <laughs> you want a wheelchair, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what you want. A cool mobility scooter, like somewhere between a mobility scooter and a moped. I'd feel a lot more comfortable on that than on a scooter. 
the problem is at the moment because there's a load of stuff about them online. I think people are jumping to conclusions before they've even tried it. I genuinely think they are better than these bike systems. I would rather see these on the roads than bikes. No need to wear Lycra. You, you can turn up to work without being a, a sweaty mess. That's much better. And were you on the road or were you on the pavement? We did a mix. Right. So that's the other thing with them. You can, like, even though it's advised that you don't go on the on the pavements... The advised? Pa- I mean, you just said it's illegal. Yeah, sure. But because of their size, it's quite easy for you to sort of, like, whip onto a pavement if you need to, if mm. it's safer. So these bird scooters, then, do you think they're coming to London and Britain soon? Well, no, because oh. they're illegal. Electric uh, motorised vehicles of any kind are illegal in the UK. But you just said you can buy one from Halfords. What are you supposed to do with it? You can. You can ride it around your driveway at home if you've got one big enough. No. Is that right? That's true, yeah. What about those silly things that people call hoverboards that are actually just sort of floating rollerblades? Are they illegal too? They're part of the reason it's illegal, yeah. I did not know that. Well, I didn't know until I got home either. Look how shocked I am that you've taught me something. I know. It's time for your challenge for next week's show, Ollie, and it's from Trish. Mm Mm-hmm who says, I keep reading about the trend for English wine. Is it really good now? I'd like Ollie to find out. You want me to drink wine? Which sounds like an appealing challenge, but actually I have my suspicions that actually English wine is probably not all it's cracked up to be. After all, I know this summer's been a bit different. We don't really have the climate for it, do we? I've drunk Foster's in the past. It can't be worse than that. So, (laughs) yeah, I'm in. Hello man fans, my name is Lara Morgan and these are my top tips on how to maximise the use of fragrance to mood effect and to lead a positive, happier life. So my first tip is stop and take a moment for yourself. If you use a combination of the rosemary and sage or peppermint, which is very eye-opening and mind-lifting, then you have the most amazing fast carry memory burn from childhood days where your your memory is bank is the most incredibly powerful machine and it will enhance that moment of focus my second tip is about breathing really well be uplifted through perhaps a zesty grapefruit or the smell of a lemon or a lime take a really good inhale and feel invigorated through the use of fragrance and through the use of conscious breathing If you're thinking about a sleep ritual, the value of calming, restorative fragrance, and obviously lots of people will immediately default to lavender, but there's loads of different types of lavender and a modern oriental lavender combined with Lang Lang and and Palma Rosa, which are rich in impact, make you think about that moment of calm in which you perhaps are lying in bed and you're properly thinking about the relaxation of the day. The third tip, you know, the most important thing is to stop, inhale, and then reset. And the reset piece is moving from the mindset where you might have been to a much more positive mind over matter. If you light a candle and you scent a room, the mindset management that you can achieve in the stop, in the inhale, and the reset will allow you to take whatever journey or choice you wish to take by influencing your mood through scent. And the history of the ingredients of these things is absolutely proven in the inverted commas old art of aromatherapy. Should you wish to maximize the power of fragrance, please go to centered, spelt S-C-E-N-T-E-R-E-D.com and enhance your thinking through the power of aromatherapy to stop inhale and reset. 
Thanks to Lara for her life hacks, sponsored by Podcast Lounge for Windows. Podcast Lounge is the new podcatcher for Windows 10 devices. It's an app where you can discover, subscribe and enjoy podcasts. If you're new to podcasts, then Podcast Lounge is the app for you. Their developers have baked in tutorials covering the basics through to expert tips to really get the best possible listening experience. What will you get up to in the lounge? Go to Windows 10 Store and download your free trial of Podcast Lounge now. Now, if you're about to head off on your summer holidays, it's increasingly likely you're about to take a cruise. A record number of British passengers booked a cruise last year. The Caribbean is an increasingly popular destination and Disney Cruise Line operates four ships in the region. Each has 11 public decks, accommodation for over 2,000 passengers and 950 crew. What is it like being one of them? Andy Young knows firsthand. Or at least he did. If Disney's lawyers are listening, this is very much just one man's story of what it was like working for Disney 20 years ago. We're making no parallels with today. I started by asking Andy, since I've never been on a cruise ship, what surprises might await me if I stepped on board? They're not stuffy. They're not cramped spaces that you're having to duck around. And they're not a prison. They're, they're huge places. I think that's the bit that people will be surprised about the most. The cabin, the because the on Disney they're called staterooms, not cabins. But your, your quarters or your, your room will be a lot bigger than you expect it to be. It's not tiny. You know, all the mod cons are there. You want for absolutely nothing. Those will be the biggest perceptions that will be instantly smashed as soon as you get there. And what was the route that the cruise went on? The so my ship, uh, we did uh, the Bahamas. So we did we did Nassau. Wow. Disney have got their own island called Castaway Key. No. Yes. Have they really? Yes. Is the Disney cruise the only way to get there? Yes. It's literally their island. Yeah, it's one of the old islands. Actually, there's a story in there. Apparently, it was an island that was owned by one of the old drug lords. And there's a runway on it. And then apparently uh, the where all the, the American FBI teams went, there's, there's sunken ships and sunken boats all around the island from when obviously the FBI closed them down. Um, but it's, it, was, it was, which is funny because now it's Disney and it was previously a drug haven. Well, hey, Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's a brand for everything. Well, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> when we kind of passed the interview and we were uh, given our kind of, we'd like to take you on, you're then given a list of 250 cocktails, which you're told to learn. Um, off a piece of paper. Fortunately, I was working in a cocktail bar uh, at the time, so I kind of I got to practice my wares. But when you're called up, so the, the, from being accepted from the interview to being called up to ship was four months. You buy your ticket to to Florida. You you pay for your first ticket out, and then they they deal with the rest of it. And you're taken to Celebration, which is their I guess their admin offices in their little town outside of Disney World. Yeah, just explain to people who don't know about Celebration what Celebration is, because that's if you think it's weird Disney have got their own island, yeah. I think this is even weirder. So yeah, Disney have got their own little town. People live yeah. effectively in Disney World property, don't they? Yeah, and it's it's a town that is just outside Disney World that, that Disney own. That's where all their, their offices are, and people live, as you say. So you're, you're taken to Celebration, and then you, you kind of rock up the next day into the, the classroom, if you like, and you're taught how to point. There is a Disney point. Is there? Yeah. If you imagine putting your hand out with and you're pointing with a finger, that's a big no-no because you're it's seen as quite aggressive. Yeah. So you either point with your whole hand and your fingers out, so all of your fingers pointing. Like Mickey or, wearing a glove. Indeed. Or you use two fingers as if you were doing 
uh, a pretend gun, I suppose, how kids would hold their, their fingers in a gun. So they, it's the two-finger point. So either of those are acceptable, but the single-finger point is not. The smile all the time is obviously rule number one. Uh, be happy. But I, I didn't find that a chore. Uh, it sounds very cheesy, but, but smiling all the time isn't hard when you're there. And then obviously you're talked about what their codes mean for the ship. You're given a lot of training on, on what, ha- what to do if the ship gets into trouble. There's a lot around things not to say. So they don't like abbreviations because the one of the abbreviations is the senior on duty. So a sod. And if you're calling everybody a sod, then that again, it's, it's all of the language and it's all of the ways that Disney have kind of thought about how can we make this the best experience for everybody else. There was a the- there was a little kind of theme park slash fair that was just by the hotel that was all for us to use. And then, you know, little day trips, we went to Disney World. They show you that, you know, this is the experience. This is what you want to see from you guys, right from the guys on the gates to, to the people who are working in the stores, to the, to the ride operators. Were you prepared to be out at sea, though? No. My dad had uh, was in the Merchant Navy when he was, I guess, m- my age at that point. And he said that it would be tough. But I don't think you're ever prepared. The laws changed not long before I joined the ships, but... You, the maximum you could be at sea was eight months. And then you had to have time off after that point. And it was always 25% off versus what you were working. So if I did eight months, so I had to have two months off by law. That's maritime law. And that comes down depending on if you do six months, etc. And that eight months, is that eight months literally on the ship or when you dock, you've got the option to get off? Yeah, of course. When, when, when you're docked, if you're not working, yeah, of course, you've, you've got free time. Get off. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, some of the... On the, on the ship, there were 14 bars, and one of them was a nightclub. Now, the nightclub didn't start till 4 o'clock. Your shift didn't start till 4 o'clock. So you had all the day through to 4 o'clock in the afternoon to do whatever you wanted to do. One of the days that I even went to Disney World whilst I was working on Disney. It no. Was, yeah, absolutely. We just took a day trip. We hired a car and just drove up to Disney World uh, and went to the park. Why? Trip. Just because that's talk what about a busman's to. holiday, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean, of course, you you get into the park free working there, so you know it was just a hire of a car and, and driving up, and it was it was a few hours from from Port Canaveral where where you dock. What were your quarters like? Well, they're they're sort of small, <laughs> at my level. So I guess at normal normal bartender level, which is what I was, you're sharing with somebody else. You've got bunks, you have one desk and a television. If you're lucky, you have your own shower. If you're not so lucky, you share a shower with a cabin that's next door. So there will be a Jack and Jill door and then you'll four of you. Prison cell size, I would say, potentially even smaller than a prison cell. And no window, presumably? Uh, Our cabins were below water. And then the next level up was kind of at water level and you would get a window if you're on the outside. And then I guess more senior, you got got further up the boat. Who are you sharing with? So the first time I got a lovely guy from St. Vincent called Jerry. He would wake me up by throwing a can of Heineken in my face. And that was, that was the start to the day. And then as people rotate, you, you change your cabin mate. So I had a guy from the Faroe Islands. I had a couple of Australians, a couple of English guys. Is it a bit weird not to have any privacy, though? Yes, and that's part of, I guess, the, the, the getting into the, the way of working on a ship is you have to accept there's very little privacy. You're stuck on the ship with a thousand people that you have to see all day, every day. Yes, you can get off, but you're you're contracted to seven days a week, a minimum of 70 hours per week. Um, and that really was a minimum. I don't think I worked 70 hours at all. 
and then to finish your shift and not really be able to go home, kick off your shoes, sit in your boxer shorts and just enjoy your, your time. You are stuck. If you're, you know, if your cabin mate's there, your cabin mate's there. If he's not, great. It takes a lot to get used to that mentality. A lot of people didn't cut it and they would they would quit within the first, I think anything up to six weeks. I think if you got past the six week point, you were going to be okay. I think anything up to six weeks, you, you, you it was the make or break point. I mean, you must have had some difficult nights at sea. We had a couple of thunderstorms uh, that we went through. We were due to to go into dry dock, so the, the boat was ready to have all the bottom scraped and all cleaned and things. But one of our stabilizers on the sh- on the bottom of the ship that went under the water to stabilize it, one of them was broken. Didn't it? Wouldn't go out. So when we were in this thunderstorm, the captain had the option of either putting the hammer down and going straight through the middle. I had to go around, but going around, the, the storm was getting bigger. So he, he decided to just go as what he could and go through the middle. And it was like a scene out of a movie that you would see the glasses were moving on the table from side to side. People were being quite poorly. Luckily, on your level or the passengers as well? All of everybody. Uh, I mean, you, so there's a thousand crew. You've got 3,000 guests. There's 4,000 people on the ship. Simultaneously being poorly was, was not the prettiest sight. <laughs> Uh, Difficult to maintain the Disney smile, surely, in that scenario. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at that point, they they make the decision that kind of actually the safety aspect is uh, return to your cabin and just sit this out. People are on the decks and they're just kind of oh wow. <laughs> well, it's a holiday experience. Isn't yeah, it? absolutely. Yeah, of course, and it's something they'll take home. And it's uh, it was scary, but you come through it, and you just you just put your trust in the guy that's driving the ship, and you think you have to you have to believe he's know what he's do- he knows what he's doing. I was in charge of a, a group of five people that would launch the life rafts, not the lifeboats, the life rafts, and they're the, mainly the, the, the crew. There's always enough lifeboats for all the guests, plus extra. Uh, since the Titanic, that rule came in. There always has to be, I think, one and a half times evacuation abilities for the amount of people that are on the ship. Yeah, because people in panic go off with half-full boats. Absolutely. You do a drill every single week, and to the point where... I could do it in my sleep with my eyes closed. That it, we we were that practiced. I mean, thankfully, we never had to put it into practice. But in my head, if I'm doing that, what are the actual naval guys doing? What are they doing to practice their role? And and you you just kind of you just kind of go. They they know what they're doing. What was the hardest time for you being at sea? So I spent my first my first time I was there. I spent Christmas on the ship, and I came off at the back end of January. And I think being away from home that far for the first time, being on a ship. And whilst I had made my friends at that point and we were, you know, we were tight as as group of people, being away from home at Christmas time is is still really hard. I'm not so much of a home bird, but I, I, I think that was the one point or one of the few points that I really remember missing home. We were still having uh, guests at that point. Obviously, you know, we're making their Christmas. And as much as the, the management would look after us, it, we were still working. And we were still making somebody else's Christmas. And it it, it just panged, I, I suppose, at that point. This is the time before Facebook, before Twitter, really before broadband. I mean, you they, there was dial-up on the ship, but it cost an absolute fortune to, to get an email out. Um, you know, we were given little, little cards to use and we used to pay them. But, you know, $20 would last absolutely nothing. So the only time really I could speak to family and friends home was when we got off the ship in Florida and you'd, you'd go and use the telephones and call home. But to modern ears, a lot of that sounds like heaven. Like the idea of actually being cut <laughs> off and you've got an excuse not to speak to people, not mm-hmm. to be on social media and actually just have a good time or a bad time, but away from everyone else. Yeah. 
Must have been quite liberating as well. Yes, you are very much in control of your old destiny. There's a thousand crew on the ship, and it's very even split between male and female. So being a young man who isn't the ugliest person on the ship, uh, faced with <laughs> 500 women, is, is, it is very liberating, and lots of experiences. And but, hold on, but lots of experiences in rooms where everyone's got a bunkmate? Yes. How did that work? Because whilst you bunked with somebody, they didn't always share your shift, so they would potentially be working at different hours to you. Um, or the person that you were hooking up with had a bunkmate who was working different hours. I mean, if you were lucky, then you went for somebody senior who had their own cabin anyway. Um, <laughs> so you've got the rank of good looks and then you've got the rank of rank as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The optimum diagram crosses. Yeah, there is an optimal place there. <laughs> it's very intense. I mean, a relationship on something where you're so confined and so close is nothing like when you're out and about. I mean, we always said it's nothing. it's not real life. It becomes very intense very quickly. And then the rule was that when you broke up with somebody, the rule was you couldn't get with somebody else for two cruises. Now, bearing in mind, two cruises would be a week. Mm. So the rule was you had to wait a week before you could hook up with somebody else. Um, and that was the, un- the unspoken rule. But it would then become really intense and you would spend days, weeks, months with the person. And then, and then depending on, on how you are, um, there was a lot of married people on the ship that would come and earn money. You know, the Filipinos and the Thai all of the Eastern European, would come and earn their money, send it all back home, because to them it's an absolute fortune. And I guess when I was there, it was two to one dollars to the pound. So actually, the dollars I was earning was halved when I sent it home. So there was a lot of people that, were, that would be on their own and just spend their evenings just socialising, I suppose. But the, the idea of a sort of one-night stand didn't really happen then, because it's so intense. Like, you'd see each other the next day, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's... it's For those that can do it, I, I suppose there was the one-offs. But you're absolutely right. You're saying goodbye in the morning. Yeah. And then you're seeing them around the corner ten minutes later as you bump into them going to work. And it's not like a traditional, yes, it might be a one-night stand, but you're, you're thrown back in together. You're not able to get away from this person. I mean, if it was horrible then, you know, you just had to do everything you could to not see this person. But again, you're on, you know, you're on a ship where you're confined. And what about relationships with holidaymakers? So there are a few rules, I guess. And at the top of the tree was, before murder, was don't sleep with the guests. <laughs> um, I had two really, really good English friends. Both of them got fired for sleeping with guests. One got grassed up uh, and one was just, one, one was just stupid. Uh, grassed up? Yeah, so one of the one of the somebody somebody saw him and told one of the security to go and look behind a curtain and you will find something that probably shouldn't be happening. So he got caught. I managed to avoid that and didn't get caught. So you did break the rule. Yes. There was a woman that had come to one of the bars. The most bars was, were were staffed by several people. Some bars were staffed by one person. She happened one day up, upon me, I was working in the, one of the bars that was just staffed by me. Uh, she sat down at the bar and we made drinks and we, we, had, we had a chat. She was absolutely beautiful and wearing uh, a very small bikini. And then the next day we were at Disney's Island. And again, I was in a bar. <laughs> it's an amazing beginning to any story. <laughs> <laughs> again, I was, I was in a bar that was kind of on a little peninsula. I was on my own. And I said, hey, why don't you come and see me tomorrow? And then the next day came along and... I knew that my supervisor had done the rotation to check on me, make sure I was okay, did I need anything. I knew that he'd been, so I knew I had a window <laughs> and it was not the best weather that day. So I knew that the beaches weren't so busy. So I took the opportunity to, to lock the door 
uh, with us both in the in the bar in the back. In the bar. Well, behind. Obviously, not yes, not, in, sure. not in the serving area, but yes. in 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 the yeah. I absolutely. thought you were going to say in your cabin. So okay, so you had a bit more space in the bar. Presumably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you couldn't get anybody down to your quarters. It would just there'd just be too many people seeing you doing that. And presumably, you couldn't go up to hers either. No, you you had. This suddenly sounds a bit like Downton Abbey. Yeah. Like, you know, like if yeah. you'd gone upstairs, everyone yeah. would have seen you and there'd be a lot of gossip. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you had no place being there, then you were you were asked why you were there because I had no reason to be anywhere near the guest rooms. If I mean, forget about sex for a second. If someone just became your friend, mm-hmm. if they were staying for two cruises and over the course of a week, they became your friend. Yeah. And they said, do you want to have a drink in my room? Did you have to say no? I wasn't allowed to. So my ID card is green, which means that I am at no point, unless I am working, I'm not allowed in any guest areas. There are people then, you get a white ID card, which means that you're allowed to be in guest areas whilst not on shift. So because I had a green one, I wouldn't have been able, I would have had absolutely no reason to be allowed to be in guest areas. I got my mum on the ship for uh, a few days And when she came on, and obviously we wanted to have dinner together, I had to go through so much red tape just to go and have dinner with her in a restaurant. Really? Yeah, to have dinner with my mum. And this was, you know, provable, this is my mum, blah, blah, blah. To have that ability, I had to go through because, purely because my ID card was green. It's because it's Disney, isn't it? There must have been all these extra levels of paranoia about that because it's Disney. Yeah, of course. They can't be in the news for anything that's anything remotely, you know, guest is, is... assaulted while on the Disney cruise line talking about Disney being in the news when when I got to celebration on day one I remember checking into my hotel and turning my television on the news was on and the top news story was Disney magic gets busted for, for importing drugs from the Caribbean islands so the other ship that I wasn't on 12 people got pulled by the police for importing drugs wow. and that was that was the lead story the first day I got into America and how were like, they dealing with that Internally, I don't know. It was all well above my head and before before I really got, you know, two weeks before I got anywhere near a ship. But everyone must have been talking about that. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the, the code word on the ship was, do you want to go and play chess? And that was, we're going to go down and do drugs. But actually, you could see that faded. I mean, you, you heard it. What, what drugs are you talking about? Well, cocaine. I mean, weed wasn't so much there because you could smell it so much. But cocaine and amphetamines, I suppose, were, were, the, were the area of choice. Because everybody was working so hard and everybody was knackered, that pick-me-up that it would give the people was, was probably a lot the motivation for doing it. So was a blind eye slightly turned to that, and yet people sleeping with guests were sent away? I don't think it was. I mean, as much as you get to know what the term let's go and play chess means, if it was ever heard by anybody in senior management, I have no doubt that they would deal with it for sure. And actually, I think that, that the, the Disney magic getting busted like it did you heard it less and less to the point where by the time I was ready to come off and start working on the ships, you, you, I couldn't tell you that I heard it even once in the last six months that I was there. So you were a bartender. Uh, there are bartenders on every cruise ship. Yeah. But on a Disney cruise, there are people whose job it is to play a character. Yes. As in a Disney character. Yes, absolutely. Does that mean you saw the Mickey costumes unoccupied at any point no uh no they are very regimented so not even in the crew areas would you see a character half dressed they were either in their civvies that's amazing or they were full characters even in the crew areas they would go into a room into the changing rooms the door would be closed and locked and then they would take the costume off however there was just before I joined, there was a... everything happened just before you joined. I know it's it's, it's almost convenient. like it's almost like all the fun people left when I <laughs> when I got there. 
but there was a couple um, who were the the actors for the characters, and they had stolen away a, a Mickey and a Minnie head, and went and had some some alone time in their cabin and took pictures with the heads on. <gasps> And the pictures were distributed around. And oh, my God. Not only were they summarily sent home, anybody found in possession of pictures were sent home. I mean, that is a massive corporate... I mean... Yeah. If those pictures got online, that's... Uh... Well, that's it. I mean, again, luckily, this is before any of that really hit. I mean, obviously, we, you know, two or three years later when Facebook came, and yeah, yeah you would have been a very different story. But, but no, at that point, there was very little ways to get that online. How did they get, I mean, that's fascinating. How did you go through that level of training that they gave you, even as a bartender, to actually get to play the corporate mascot of the Walt Disney Company and then think it's a funny idea to take a picture of you fucking with a mascot? I think because you're young, you're quite a lot of the time drunk when you're not working. And I think that, as we all know, as we've all experienced, I'm sure, is when we're drunk and when we're young, we think things are a great, funny idea that actually in the cold light of day probably isn't the best thing. I mean, it is a funny idea. <laughs> yes, yes, the chuckles were had, absolutely. Wow. Your drinks are heavily subsidised as crew, so a can of beer would cost 60 cents, a cocktail would be anything between a dollar and a dollar fifty. But you're not using cash, you're paying on your room and then you pay your bill at the end of the, the term. So you're not really figuring out how much you're spending. But yes, I drank and sometimes... To, to the point where I would wake up half in my cabin, half in the corridor. I've woken up in my shower, not really understanding how I got there. Wow. Is it the alcohol with the waves? Probably. Was it just the fact that because we were crew, they were giving us so much more alcohol than normal? Most definitely. But yeah, we, we really, really drank. Some of us, I mean, some people just weren't bothered, but a lot of people would drink a lot more than they would do if they weren't where they were. Why did you stop? Two reasons. First one was, I think just genuinely I was ready. It had been three contracts. Whilst I loved it, I think I was ready to come back. The other reason was that our bar manager at the time was a lovely guy who was from a little Filipino town and he'd been doing cruise ships when he was in his late 50s, 60s. And they made his position redundant. So there'd be no bar manager. There would be assistant bar manager with three of them. And they said... We can offer you an assistant bar manager's job, but obviously you would take the pay cut and the you would lose your own cabin. And he, he originally told them to to go fuck themselves and how dare you, this is so demeaning, I've been doing this for years and how dare you. But he went home and he'd become so in, institutionalised living on a ship that couldn't adapt to being back on land all the time. So he actually came back as an assistant bar manager with all the pay cuts, with all the, the re- reduction in... in quality of life that he originally had and I I guess I had a glimpse of I could stay here and the money was amazing I mean you're you're earning tax-free money and actually I could become that guy that could probably never really live on on land properly again and I, I think that scared me a little bit and I kind of I guess I put the two together and just thought this will be my last one and I'll go home were you a bit institutionalised? Yeah. When you come home in between the contracts, or when you're on, on vacation in between, you have to readjust to living with space. It's almost because you come home, but everybody else is still working, of course. They're still going about their daily lives. You spend a lot of time on your own, which is really weird because you've just not been used to it for eight months. And eight months is a long time of anybody's life. And then to come home and to instantly find that flipped on its head 
it's hard and you know by the time that you've just got re reused to it you're back on the ship and then it's flipped again and you're you're back into the oh my god I'm I'm seeing everybody all the time and that story you just told about that slightly older gentleman who's working in the bar hear about that you hear about a lot of the younger people working for Disney in the parks who are basically paid minimum wage and don't necessarily have the union rights that you might expect in a country like USA mm-hmm. in such a huge company as well do you think there's an exploitative element of that company in the way they treat young people who are idealistic and love Disney because of the kind of brand values that they've seen in the films and, and on the TV shows? I genuinely don't think so. I, they, they hide nothing. So, for example, so I told you about my contract hours. My contracted salary was $26 every two weeks. That was what I officially earned. The rest of it was made up from tips. Christ. So, if you made no money, then you, you essentially you were paid $26 a fortnight. They don't hide that in, in, in a small wording of a contract. They tell you that this is, this is how it's going to be. This is what you're expected to do. However, your tips will be this, and this is the usual range of what you'll be paid. What uh, kind of tips did you get? So on a bad week, you'd make $500 a week. On a, on a great week, you'd make $1,500 a week. I so mean, you're getting $50 tips sometimes. Yeah, I mean, some people would tip you as they went along, and then some people would come and see I mean, if you'd had a good conversations with people and they'd come and see you daily that they would find you at the end and kind of give you bring you some money but every drink that was sold there was 15% added on so that was all pulled between everybody and then your tips were your own uh, anything above and beyond were that but but sometimes you you do particularly well every year florida or disney do a cruise for floridian people so where it might cost $1000 $2000 to go it cost them $99 if you're a floridian resident and they were people that wouldn't normally have that kind of holiday. And so the tips were very much at the lower end that week. You know, when, when the English holidays were on, there were a lot more English people. And we we're all very quite uptight about tips. We don't like paying it. And although they were 50-50, some people wouldn't. And then some people would go overboard and give you loads and loads of money. And then, of course, you get all the, you know, you get the big names on. Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown came on. Uh, as, as guests with their kids. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. As guests with just having a holiday. George Bush Sr. came on. He was lovely with his family. Jonathan Ross came on. So there was, there was quite a few. And they would, they would always go, I think probably more the, of a show of, you know who I am, so I'm going to make sure that I look after you. But they would always tip quite well. Okay, this was a while ago now. Mm. You're a bit older. Yeah. Uh, you have a long-term partner who I've yeah. just met. Would you consider going on a Disney cruise for a holiday? Wouldn't hesitate. I'd, I'd love to go back and see how different it is. I'd love to go on the new ships and see how that differs. I want to hear... The horn. So I don't know whether uh, you know, but but obviously a cruise ship will. When they leave port, they will do the horn, the Hong Kong. Oh God, you've become a proper cruise geek. Yeah. When Disney left, their horn was when you wish upon a star. <laughs> our ship. That's the only one that we could, that our ship could play. The new ships can play seven different tunes. But I would I would go back. I do I do look, but it, it is quite expensive coming from this coming from over here. And what's your message for anyone listening to this who is going on a cruise this summer and taking their family on a summer holiday on any cruise ship? Yeah. What should they be thinking when they get on the boat? Just do as much as you can. As much as you're, you're stuck on a ship, there will be, irrespective of who you cruise with, there will be so much to do. There will be so much entertainment. You'll be looked after fantastically. Usually the food is absolutely free. Eat as much as you can and... Just really, really, really get involved. Andy Young. 
And by the way, if you are a Disney fan and you'd like to hear more of me talking about Disney, do check out the recent episode of the BBC's podcast Radio Hour I guest hosted, in which I interview my favourite Disney podcaster, the comedian Natalie Palomides. I'll put a link to that on the post for this on our website, modernman.co.uk. Still to come, our record of the week, and Alex Fox is up next after this. Love the kind you clean up with a mop and bucket. It's the Foxhole with Alex Fox. How are you? I'm great, thanks, Ollie. I've been spending the last couple of weeks thinking not only about ding-dongs, as usual, but also the ding-dong of wedding bells, because I have not one, not two, not three, but four weddings to attend this summer. Christ, that's expensive. I've also been asked to arrange a lot of the hen parties associated with these weddings. So I've been trying to dream up imaginative, inventive games and locations to go to for for hens and stags. Right, yeah, go on. What's the trend? Champing. It's okay. camping in a chapel. You can go in Fine. all sorts of ancient churches. And, and if you're going to walk down the aisle, you may as well practice with your girls before you do it. No, I thought that, that's nice. I, I tell you what I was just slightly terrified you might say is, you know, hen parties of late have all had those enormous inflatable cocks with them wherever they go and like cock whistles and cock straws. It seemed I was just for a moment in representing all of mankind. I was worried you were going to say the trend was that you get some sort of like specially printed version of your own boyfriend's penis, and that's what you carry around with you. You can actually get no, no, clone I don't willy want to know. kits. Oh god! Where you put plaster of Paris all over your your partner's. People invite phallus. their future mother-in-laws to their hens. This would be terrible. <laughs> I think they're designed so that if you're in a long-distance relationship, then you can make your own rubber version for yourself, so you're not even cheating on them with a silicone replicant. If you want to buy your own toy of a more conventional nature, uh, do visit our sponsors, mycondom.com. Who stock a wide range of boys' own condoms. Boys' own are one of the few condom ranges specifically designed for safety and pleasure of gay men, and Uh they're tested. They're tested in terms of anal sex, and a lot of condoms aren't. So yay for boys' own. And our question this week is from Craig from Richmond, Virginia, who says... My fiancé and I have been sexually active with one another for over two years. Our wedding is later this year. And we are going to go on a sex fast for the remainder of our engagement. It's the most important meal of the day. Whilst this doesn't mean we are abstaining from all forms of sexual play, we want to spend time getting to know each other and each other's bodies in different ways. So we've invented a few general rules for our sex fast. And I'm curious what ideas you have for us that fit within them. Uh, Our hope is that in this time we get to know each other better personally and emotionally and we're hoping our break from sex will make our wedding night still quite spectacular and not just the same old, same old. So his sex rules are, Alex, no penetrative sex and that includes anal and oral. They cannot give each other orgasms using any part of their bodies. Uh, No fingering, no hand jobs. Masturbation is allowed anywhere in our apartment at any time as long as there's no company. And touching of and playing with each other's sex organs is permitted as long as you don't actually give the other person an orgasm. It was reminding me um, up until a point of those signs that you used to get at leisure centres behind the swim- <laughs> beside the swimming pool. You know, like no dive bombing, no fingering, no yeah. hand jobs, no penetration of any kind. Masturbation is allowed when the wave machine is off. <laughs> 
<laughs> I actually think this sex fast is a great idea and I think more people should do this kind of thing where they're taking penetrative sex and traditional forms of sex, if you will, off the menu for a while and sampling the other delicious delights within the sexual buffet. But to take masturbation, mutual masturbation off the menu as well, that, that does mean ultimately from a male point of view it means you are getting yourself off at the end of it right but is wanking really... in, as we have discovered and discussed in previous foxholes ollie mm. wanking in front of your partner is a brilliant exercise because you're showing them exactly how you as the number one expert get yourself off so it's a really good educational thing you can yeah, learn from each other there's a spare pair of hands right next to you i mean i just think I'm not going to toss myself off. But I think this is a great idea. They're going to reappreciate each other's bodies because they've been having sex for two years. They they know that they're good together. They, they might need maybe a, a bit of re-energising if they've come to take each other for granted a little bit or slipped into those old habits. This is going to stoke their desire. And as I so often say, sex is much more than just putting a peen in a vagine. And this sex fast is going to challenge this couple to be really creative in the other ways they find of giving each other pleasure. Mm. Something more unusual they might want to try is a practice that has been exercised for hundreds of years between heterosexual couples in Central Africa, and it's called kunyaza. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your enthusiasm is spilling from every pore, Ollie Man. No, I'm uh, reserving my judgment until I know what it is. At the moment, it just sounds like a Eurovision performer, but <laughs> I know things are going to take a turn. Well, Kanyaza involves a man with his erect penis rhythmically and firmly striking the clitoral glands with it, with his erection, with okay. his heart on. So yeah. it's kind of like bouncing or hitting your knob against her nubbin. Okay, that's quite conventional so far. Then what? Then, as the woman becomes more and more aroused and her vulva starts to swell and plump up, which mm-hmm. we know is a sign of arousal... You and- shout, Kanyaza! <laughs> and you'll bring out your special Kanyaza costumes, yeah? I mean, you're welcome to do that if you want. I do encourage having fun and a giggle in the bedroom. But no, you Hold on, switch. ring the alarm. We've got a swollen vulva, everyone. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Is it that? No. I am definitely going to fit a specialist swollen vulva alarm. The vulva vulvalzela, I think it should be. No, once the woman is starting to approach climax, the guy then uh, switches into rubbing his penis from the top to the bottom of the vulva, left to right in a zigzagging motion, and then returning to strike the clitoris again. So it's sort of it's rhythmic. It's almost like a dance of the peen, if mm-hmm. you will. Then stimulating again the whole area with round, long strokes, but never actually penetrating. Now it might sound quite simple. You're basically just tapping and rubbing with your penis on someone else's vulva. But kanyaza actually means to make urinate or to make squirt because I knew it was going to take a turn. <laughs> like until then it was like, yeah, this sounds fine. Well, in African traditions, it is believed that this can lead to a squirting orgasm. In my experience, those are quite hard to achieve without more intense clitoral stimulation or internal stimulation of the G-spot. But hey, by all means, give it a go. Uh, Unfortunately, though, an an African term that I'm not so on board with is that women who don't gush when kunyaza is employed are known as, and excuse my pronunciation here, uh, they're known as Rwasbertar, which means granite splitter. Essentially, it means that a woman who doesn't come after that is essentially like trying to shag a rock, which mm. is quite shamey. So I'm not so into that. Kanyaza, yay. Calling women rocks, nay. Uh, anything else that you'd suggest, uh, or even an additional rule? 
How about dry humping? Something that a lot of people stop doing when they're teenagers. Mm. But if you think creatively about stimulating another person's body while they're still clothed, mm. it can be really exciting. See which of your sex toys work through fabric. Consider the fabrics themselves. You know, maybe you might want to put on something silky or slinky or... Or a sleeping bag if you want to cre- recreate one of my memorable camping trips from my youth. But yeah, frottage, thinking about the fabrics you're wearing, how to manipulate them, how to pull them, be inventive with belt loops and buttons and, and using maybe clothes to to tie people up or do some some um, creative bondage these kind of things really force you to think out of the box outside of the box of just bunging your penis in someone's box another thing you might want to do is a multi-sensory massage so rather than just going straight for the oils do something like uh, using different scrubs on different parts of the body or um, have you seen those hot stones yes i've had them applied to me in fact by a proper massage practitioner this wasn't an erotic uh, environment well they can be very erotic well I, I walked around with crippling back pain for three days wasn't erotic for me but you know <laughs> yeah maybe you do your research don't, don't just if you've got the early signs of arthritis craig i wouldn't recommend it but you know <laughs> i'm sure it's very sexy for someone else smooth polished stones that you immerse in hot water until they're hand hot and then you place on someone's yeah, body it, did actually, it felt amazing it can I feel really gorgeous yeah And a final idea, art, to light up your parts. Maybe buy your partner some uh, nicely wrapped box of art supplies, so paper, pastels, charcoal, pencils. Take turns posing for each other. You might be totally nude. You might want to accessorise with some beautiful jewels, maybe buy some gorgeous lingerie, and then act as each other's life models. This, again, helps you to reappreciate someone's body and look at it in brand new ways. So if you spent the last couple of years maybe getting a little bit over-acclimatised to your partner in the nud. This is a good way of taking a second look and really um, really reappraising their beauty with fresh eyes. If you're talented as well, you might end up with some really gorgeous portraits of each other just before your wedding, which is rather a lovely souvenir. If you're shit at art, it'll be funny, which is also a valuable thing in any relationship. And with that... I just have one final warning to give to our couple here. They are placing enormous amounts of pressure on their wedding night being spectacular. By abstaining from penetrative sex for as long as they intend to and placing so much emphasis on their wedding night being the final evening when they get to ravish each other. When they will have been drinking a lot and spending a lot of time with each other's grandparents. Exactly. They're going to be knackered. They're possibly going to be tiddly. They may have been eating rich food. Weddings can actually be really, really stressful. There's a lot of clean-up and botherations at the end of the night. Please, please, to this gorgeous couple, don't read into things too much if your wedding night sex is actually more like just slumping on your hotel bed. Save it for the morning if you want. Or commit yourselves to having lovely, penetrative, missionary, fairly straightforward sex. Just don't overthink it and don't see it as a bad sign if your wedding night sex isn't the bang that goes with the bang. Uh, Good advice, as ever, if you have a question for Alex, what do you need to do with it? You just need to go to our website, which is modernman.co.uk and hit feedback. And if you want to buy some equipment for your big night, (laughs) you're spending a lot on the wedding anyway, uh, head to mycondom.com where we have a special discount for you. 
Yep, you can get 15% off everything on the website with the code FOXHOLE. Useful to know if you're going on your honeymoon that mycondom.com sell lots of little sachets of lubricant which are compatible with airline regulations on what liquids you're allowed to bring. So come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new manbassador. It's Kat in Folkestone, who says, I don't know how specific your manbassadorships are getting these days, but I'd be happy to be manbassador for people who have narrowly avoided the surname Man. My mother's maiden name was Man, and I am called Cat. Catman would have been horrific. Uh, well, Kat, uh, you bought us a beer, for which we thank you heartily, so you can be ambassador for whatever you want, really. But let's stick with Folkestone, shall we? Uh, congratulations. If you'd like to buy us a beer to support the show, please do. Links are on our website. Music now. And our theme is by Django Django from their self-titled debut album. You can stream it now. And this is our record of the week. It's by Jackie Cohen. It's called Maddie, and it's out now on Space Bomb Records. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.